Hello, and welcome to episode 33 of the Movie Marathoners podcast. I'm your host, Mati, and joining me today is the host of the Movies After Work podcast, Thomas Green. How are you doing tonight, Tom? I'm doing good. I'm uh, happy. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for joining me. This week, we'll be running through Sam Mendes's Mendes's sure. war film and potentially an Oscar frontrunner. Uh, that's 1917. So uh, as always, we'll warm up with brief spoiler-free thoughts on the film, and then we'll run into spoiler territory where we can talk freely about the film. And as usual, we'll round out the episode with our point two section where we discuss what else we've been watching. But first, let's read a synopsis of 1917. That is, two young British soldiers during the First World War are given an impossible mission. Deliver a message deep in enemy territory that will stop 1,600 men and one of the soldiers' brothers from walking straight into a deadly trap. 1917 stars Dean Charles Chapman and George McKay, and it is written by Sam Mendes and Christy Wilson Cairns, and is directed by Sam Mendes. Like, pick a man, bring your kit. I hoped today might be a good day. Hope is a dangerous thing. You have a brother in the 2nd Battalion. Yes, sir. They're walking into a trap. Your orders are to deliver a message calling off tomorrow morning's attack. If you fail, it will be a massacre. Let's talk about this for a minute. Why? We've got orders to cross here. That is the German front line. If we're not clever about this, no one will get to your brother. I will. So, Tom, did you know about the one-shot aspect of this film before going into it, or was that something that you kind of found out when you were seeing the film for the first time? It was something I had heard about uh, shortly after I watched the initial uh, teaser trailer for it. I I then heard that it was doing the the one shot technique, uh, which definitely increased. It went from being a movie that looked good to one that I, I was very interested in going to see. OK, yeah. So when did it kind of first pique your interest? Was this before or after kind of the whole Golden Globes sort of? I mean, to me, I was you know, I always try to guess who wins the Golden Globes. And 1917 was not even on my radar. It was like my fifth pick for best director and best picture. Yeah, for me, I I mean, I got interested in this film beforehand. I I, I love movie trailers. I do. <laughs> it's probably a condition, but they ended up having a trailer that was all about how it was a single take. And once they did that, they, they had my full interest. Uh, the, the golden globes wins were just kind of a, a fun surprise. <laughs> I used to really like movie trailers, but then I started realizing that they would give away huge parts of the movie. And the way my brain works is I, if I see something in a trailer, I'm always using that as expectations for where the film is going to go. Uh, I've started to stop watching trailers to the best of my abilities. And I've seen a couple of the 1917 trailers, but I didn't really know about the one-shot nature or really anything about this film until everything in the Golden Globes happened. And I saw, I started hearing things that said, you know, this was one of the greatest war films ever and all that stuff. Personally for you, uh, are you a war films fan? Do you have like a favorite war, war film? I, I don't watch a ton of war films, um, not for any particular reason. Uh, they, they just usually aren't what ends up on, on the screen when, when I'm relaxing. I, you know, I love, I don't, I know some people classify it as a war film, but I don't, but I, I do love, uh, Lawrence of Arabia. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm a big fan of that. I mean, my, my personal favorite war film is MASH the the robert altman film that's that's okay. that's my personal favorite of the the war films so i haven't seen any of the older war films unfortunately i think um some of my favorite ones are they're pretty cliche favorite ones uh saving private ryan and schindler's list i really like the david ayer film fury but i think honestly this film is one of my favorite warm films 
But why don't you tell me what your general thoughts were of 1917? My my general thoughts for this film was I I just I was blown away by it. I as excited as I was for it, I was expecting to just kind of walk into a sort of gimmicky single shot film. Mm-hmm. But uh, they the way they used the the single camera or the single shot aspect of it uh the the way they used it and i'll get into it a little bit more when we get spoilery but the way they used it was so great and it played so well into the story that they were telling that it just kind of elevated what i was watching yeah i thought this thing was just a technical masterpiece i think like you, I was pretty worried that I was walking into something that had almost too high of expectations that like I didn't think that it was going to be able to meet those expectations. I think literally an hour or two before I saw this film, I was listening to a podcast where somebody had put it as their number one film of the year, and they had said that it was one of the best films like of the decade. Uh, it was actually the Slash Film cast. Uh, Jeff Kanata mentioned that it was his favorite film of 2019. So I was like, oh my God, am, is this hyping me up way too much? And so I tried to temper my expectations a little bit, but you can only do that so much. But going into this, it, I mean, it was just incredible. Um, there are literally jaw-dropping set pieces and some of the camera work, like you mentioned. It's amazing. I There was just certain moments where I just kind of had my mouth like slightly ajar while watching it. And the cinematography, everything behind this is great. I saw you had a tweet where you mentioned that, you know, there's that one trailer shot that they always play. Even I saw that one. It's the one where it's George McKay's character running through kind of a whole bunch of characters charging through No Man's Land, right? Yeah. You see that in the trailers. And so you know it's coming. You're waiting for it. And you think, you know, when you have a a moment like that that's in the trailers so much and so much in the marketing, it usually doesn't feel that powerful in the film itself but i mean that scene is just crazy to watch yeah it's it's one of those great moments where you know yeah again literally the the mark i felt the marketing of this film even the little um behind the scenes look how we did it stuff even predominantly focused on that shot the marketing was so wrapped around that moment but then you get into this film and first off it's just a tiny piece of it right but also knowing more the weight and the you know the everything wrapped around that moment breathtaking yeah so i watched a trailer kind of just to refresh my mind for this podcast like you know a couple hours ago do you think that the trailer shows too much because i think this film is actually it's pretty spoiler proof um even if you know what's happening i think it's probably still really effective and even when i was anticipating certain things when they actually happen they're still really effective but i personally thought that the trailer showed a lot like a lot of the set pieces a lot of the kind of supporting characters that i didn't know were in this what are your thoughts on that well yeah, I mean, in terms of things like getting to see some of the set pieces and some of the supporting um, the A-list cameos that are in the film, things of that nature, I mean, it certainly had those. There was one aspect of the trailer that more so once I sat down and watched the movie, at a certain point in the movie, just something about the trailer clicked in my head and I realized that something was almost definitely going to happen in this movie. I think I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> didn't take away from it at all. Right. Because of how they handled it. But yeah, in that moment, so it was kind of spoilerish, but at the same time, um, the thing I, the thing I often say to people mm-hmm. in defense of trailers, it's the sort of, it's the trailers are kind of they're in this day and age. They can kind of be like, someone telling you how a magic trick is done Mm -hmm. to a certain extent with how spoilery they they can be. So, so, you know, a lot of the times I just kind of view it as the concept of if the magic is gone, when the trick is known, there was never any magic. Yeah, that's, that's fair. There, there have been plenty of times, like even uh, recently 
um, because of one moment that stuck in my head from the trailer of Knives Out, I had the whole whodunit solved in the first act. Yeah, see, that's what I'm always worried about with trailers. So that's why I just try and blanketly avoid them if I know I'm going to see the movie. <laughs> but it was, and the funny thing, though, is it, it's not the moment in that trailer to the to the marketing's defense only because my brain was already, for some reason, in that mindset of let's solve it. Right. Did it was it really a spoiler? It wouldn't I don't think to to just someone going in to watch mm. and enjoy the film it would be a spoiler, which is why I didn't knock the movie too hard for it. And it didn't take away from my enjoyment of the movie itself. You know, I predicted the first act, but I'm going to see the sequel because I love Daniel Craig's character. <laughs> right, yeah. For me it was the same with the with the trailer for nineteen seventeen. It had that, you know, I had that realization of, oh, this is probably this is almost definitely going to happen. But even having that thought in mind didn't take me away from the movie and it didn't hurt the movie. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the reasons for that is that the movie, well, so the movie has a lot of these amazing technical achievements. I think it's got beautiful production design. I mean, just thinking about how much they had to build for these. I mean, I'm I don't know if it was shot on location or something like that, but I'm assuming when they're doing these sweeping shots of the trenches and they're they're following the guys walking for five to ten minutes, I feel like you have to build all of those trenches. The scenes have to be bigger because the shots and the long takes are that much bigger and longer. So that alone is amazing. But then I also genuinely think that this film has a really good, well-written story. And it's a very simple story, but it's one that I think is really personal and relatable. And I think that you like both of those characters when everything is said and done. Um, one of the things I've noticed about this film, like the criticism of this film, is that a lot of people are saying that the technicals after that, there's nothing really left to this movie. And personally, I don't agree with that at all. What are your thoughts on that, Tom? I, I completely disagree with that. I think I think people understandably, very understandably, I think people they gimmicks turn them off. Yeah. As much as I love single takes when they're done well in movies, they are a gimmick. I, you mm -hmm. know, I'm not going to shy away from that reality, but you, you know, you end up with these movies where the whole movie is the gimmick. Uh, the, the big example to me is boyhood, right? If you take away the, the fact that it was, sh it, that he spent, you know, a week every year for 12 years shooting a movie, you take the fact that he did that away. And it's basically a film version of an old man complaining that kids today have it so easy. <laughs> yeah. I'm on the record for not liking boyhood either. I think like that whole gimmick bothers me because you can see that gimmick in Harry Potter, like watching a kid grow up on screen. That's Harry Potter. But anyways, but I, I agree with this movie, the gimmick to me, it enhances right. the story and it enhances your ability to connect and relate with these characters and what should be an impossible to relate to situation. Right. And I think it does a really good job at kind of accentuating the themes, which I guess we can get into a little bit in spoilers because I don't necessarily want to explicitly say what the movie is about. But when everything is said and done it does feel like being with the characters for the entirety of their journey is very impactful and having that ultimate message uh, resonate with you. So I, I completely agree that it's, it. I mean, I guess it is a gimmick. And if I'm being honest, for the first 15 to 20 minutes of the movie, I was more focusing on that gimmick. Like, wow, when, where can I find a cut? There was a lot of that going on. But after a while, it becomes part of the movie and it feels like like an, a relentless adventure as opposed to a gimmick. So I agree with you. Uh, I do want to get into spoilers, though, pretty quickly. So, Tom, why don't you just um, why don't you just wrap up your thoughts on the film and then score it out of 10? My my final thoughts on the film is that it is a you know, it is a sort of love letter to the, the people that that were in this war. And I think t more tastefully done than most war films are able to accomplish, uh, mm -hmm. using, using this gimmick 
to help tell tell their tale and to tell of the strength that they had. Ultimately, for me, this film, I, I give it a nine out of ten. It is it is just a uh, it is a strong, powerful film with with more depth than you would necessarily think to give it. Yeah, great. So I'm I'm right there with you. Um, I think this film. I mean, this is one of the best films of the year. I did my lists before I saw this because I didn't see this until 2020. But um, I would probably put this as like my second or third favorite film of the year. I think it is just absolutely fantastic, both from a set and production and technical design, but then also, like you say, just the feelings that it gives you at the end and the humanity of the film in a war film that's not very common or it's um, it's more difficult to kind of show that humanity of war. And I think this one does a fantastic job. That being said, if I think if you don't like war films, you know, this isn't the war film for people who don't like war films. There's it, it, it's it's bloody, it's brutal, um, sometimes viscerally so. And I do think that there are certain moments where it relies a little too heavily on some of the war tropes. And we can talk about specific scenes where it's sort of like doing that thing that war films tend to do. But I mean, I really have very few negatives about this film. The one other one I'll say is that there's a parade of very famous British actors that play different, you know, army officials, the higher ranked army officials that kind of pop up in the film every now and then. And for a film that's so immersive and for a film that has leads that are relatively unknown, uh, it's always distracting to see like the guy from Fleabag or Mark Strong in a movie where you feel like you're just in the trenches of World War One. But um Overall, I, I'm going to give this film a 10 out of 10, and I I do understand why people might not necessarily want to be rooting for a 95% male, 95% white war film to win Best Picture or anything like that, but I do think this is one of the best films of the year, and I really think that people should go out and see it. Yeah, I love 1917. So with that, let's move into spoilers. So this is your spoiler warning for 1917 starting now. That's my secret, Captain. I'm always angry. So, Tom, I think the thing that you are referring to from the trailer is that there was a point where I realized that because, uh, what's his name? Toman, Toman, the actor who plays the Game of Thrones kid, Dean Charles Chapman, because he wasn't in the scene of... Uh, the guy running of George McKay running through all the fire. I was pretty sure he was going to die. Is that what you're referencing? Yep, that was exactly it for me. I realized that there that it it just spelled unhappy ending. <laughs> yeah, but I think that scene is actually very good. Even I mean, I did see it coming. I don't know if I necessarily saw it coming when it did, but uh, it was very surprising that like I guess this goes to the whole kind of my takeaway of the film is that, you know, this isn't necessarily a depressing film or anything like that, but it does a very good job at showing the frivolity and needlessness of war and how so many people die for things that are so small and quaint. And the fact that Toman just died from this random ass German guy who stabbed him while they were trying to save him from a plane is so frustratingly like, uh, it's like anticlimactic, but it's it's very it was very tragic. It's and it's there's there's such a painful irony that the one who is the happiest to be in war dies trying to save an enemy. Yeah, there is a there is a very painful irony to that. I mean, the word that I I kept using when I was describing the movie to to my family is unforgiving. That's good. Yeah, this movie is very unforgiving in being like, no, this is what it was like. This is what it's like um, to have him f- stuck in a position where he had to crawl over all of those bodies in the river and they were all appropriate to what a dead body in water would be like. You know, we're, we're so used to, if we're watching a movie where there's dead bodies in the river, you know, those bodies are normal bodies. 
shape. They have, you know, closed eyes. They're maybe a little pale faced. And with this movie, it was like, no, they're bloated. Their tongues are stuck out from being bloated. Like it was just like, no, this is what it's like. And you're going to watch it. Yeah, that was the scene that was probably the closest to breaking me. I never cried in this film. Um, I, I guess I'm like not super vulnerable to crying in movies for whatever reason. But that scene where he just kind of breaks down after getting out of the river is just so I mean, you're right. It's unforgiving. It is brutal to watch him have to just keep going. And I think the reason that it works that well, the reason that it's feels that unforgiving is because you don't ever get a cut away from it with the exception of course of the one single cut that is in this movie yeah but when he just kind of breaks down and he is wet and gross and he just like crawled over the dead bodies of people it is it is brutal and with that it's not even just just that he you know he just abandoned a woman and a child to to dive back into the throes of war which we learned in an earlier conversation is what he did to his family. Right. He basically just had to do literally what he figuratively did to his family. (laughs) Yeah. But that, that whole water scene also reminds me of just in general, how this film does an amazing job of making you realize how gross and dirty war is. And something specifically about world war one is it's a, it's a time period, you know, the 1917s or 1910s, where it doesn't feel like it's so long ago that there isn't modern warfare, but it is still so long ago that we're not fighting in the exact same way as even World War II or Vietnam. And there is this like smelly, gross, trenchy aspect to it that I think this film really uh, makes present. And makes known. And that's everything from like when he cuts his hand on the wire, that's just a small little thing. But then he like accidentally falls into the body with the hand. And I I cringed on that scene. Uh, You walk past the rotting horses that aren't just like you said in movies, we see dead horses all the time, but they're not just the bodies of horses. It's they're skinny and rotting and have flies on them. It's uh, I feel like you can smell this film. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is this is not a movie to experiment with the other senses being involved in it. <laughs> <laughs> not not a 4D 1917 experience for you in the future? No, no, no smell of it for me or anything like that. I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the thing that I loved so much about about the the single take aspect of this film is that it both at times forces you to look at things you don't want to and refuses to show you things that you want to see at other times. Hmm. For me, like it, it harkens back to my, my favorite film. That's a single take, which is Alfred Hitchcock's rope. And the one particular shot in that movie where they refuse, you know, Hitchcock refuses to let you see what's going on with any of the characters in the, in the scene. And they might, you know, and the whole game might get, you know, they they might lose the game, essentially. And this movie constantly had that quality to it of, you know, I I don't want to see this or I do want to see this and you're not showing it to me. And having that lack of control played so much to me into uh, feeling what they were feeling and, and feeling like I was going through it with them. Yeah, there's one scene where George McKay's character is getting shot at by a sniper. And I thought it was fascinating that the camera stays with him. So you also can't see who's shooting at him. And as he's kind of hiding behind a, uh, you know, like a ledge or whatever, the the camera does a very good job at just staying below the ledge. So you can't actually see the sniper until he stands up and shoots at the sniper. So yeah, I they they do a very good job at keeping it's almost like keeping the perspective of the war at a personal individual level. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If you did a movie like this with most directors right now, you would have had scenes of, you know, overhead shots of them walking walking through or like a, a large landscape shot, things like that, but no, it it you're right, it keeps it very close to them. Pretty, pretty much at all times. 
Yeah. So, do you have an like understanding of exactly how much distance he traveled? Because at the start of the film, they say that it's going to take nine hours, but it obviously doesn't take nine hours. It takes a little under two hours because that's the length of the movie, which is essentially shot in real time. Is that because they take shortcuts and then he gets on a like a car or? How much do you or how well do you think this film uh, does at kind of giving you a sense of the distance and the scope of what's going on? Well, I think, yeah, I think part of it is, I mean, two things affect the the time of, well, no, three things, I would say, affect the time of his travel. One is that, uh, yeah, first the, the car trip, which shaves, which easily shaves some a good chunk of time off of of their walk and second is the river uh one it's moving him faster but oh, two, yeah it's it's a like you said it's a shortcut it's a different it's a different route than was expected to take and then third the army is not where they were supposed to be if they had gotten there in time they're already in the trenches starting to go out there Right. Okay. And also, and maybe it's me um, cheating for the movie, but I attributed some of that time to the fact that, you know, they're not going to just be walking. Right. (laughs) They have to, you know, they have to be walking slow. They have to be walking calculated. They have to be careful, like that there, you know, there's, there is some time attributed because yeah, when they show them the distance on the map, Obviously, I'm not sure what the scale of the map is, but it does not look like that much distance. Right. And that whole that goes back to what I, again, think is the whole central premise of this film is just how arbitrary everything about these experiences are is like, you know, it's they have to do all this shit and it only takes place over two hours and feasibly it can't be more than 10 miles. Right. Like. It is crazy that this much human cost and uh, sacrifice goes into just these tiny advances and these tiny things. And, you know, there's a a line that Benedict Cumberbatch's character says at the end where he says, hope is a dangerous thing. And I mean, in that yeah. manner, I think this film does have some tragedy behind it. It's uh, there's a lot more going on underneath the surface of this film than I think just like another war film kind of thing. Yeah. Well, and uh, for me, the, this, the whole concept in this film of, of hope, I mean, obviously our, our main character who, who makes it, it's not that he doesn't have hope per se, but he doesn't live by it. Whereas his buddy lives by hope and in a sense, it's what gets him killed. Right. It's sort of, you know, in the, in traditional, slightly cliched story writing, uh, you get, you would get a line like that at the beginning of the movie. So the audience is thinking about it as everything's unfolding. But in this movie, very appropriately, the thing, the important information is given at the very end and given after the journey is done. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and it also feels like because of his friend, the George McKay character does end up kind of renewing his, um, his hope and his faith. And I think that's what we're meant to see um, when he, you know, lies back down on the tree and takes out his picture. And we see that he has a wife and, and family, which is, is a, a trope of war films. Um, Did you have any other big takeaways from the film? Like any, uh, I don't know, morals or uh, thematic aspects? No, I mean the, the concept of, of hope and, and, you know, why we're doing this, you know, obviously the, and it's, it's probably the biggest trope in war films is characters with conflicting sensibilities of why they're doing this. (laughs) Yeah. We get things like we get, you know, we get Adam Scott's character who I could literally watch a whole movie of him just standing around insulting people. <laughs> I, I could watch a whole movie of that and be and be happy. But, you know, we get with Mark Strong's character, you know, he sets up, he plants the seed 
that once we get to Bandit Cumberbatch's character, it's going to be a whole other type of battle in and of itself to get him to stop because he's just here for the battle. But then we get to him, he's stubborn about it until all the right things are said to him. And then he reads, I mean, he takes one look at that letter, calls it off, and basically shows that he's, you know, it's not necessarily that he's in it for the blood and glory, and he's not necessarily one of the, he's not one of these characters that like, oh, it's all I know, and it's all I know to do, so I have to keep doing it. Mm-hmm. It's his It's his way of pushing through his feelings is to literally try to push through the German defenses. Yeah. So one other moral of the story that I I picked up on, have you ever had a friend text you and say, hey, are you busy Friday? And then you say no. And so then they ask you to do something terrible like move or, you know, something like that. And you can't say no because you just said you weren't busy. Yeah. So this movie is that. But instead of moving, it's uh, going across no man's land and uh, delivering a message. So the moral of this story, I think, is always ask why when somebody asks you for a favor. Like, always find out what that favor is because it would have saved uh, one of the characters a lot of stress to just be like, no, I'm busy. (laughs) Yes. Um, Also, don't be friends with Toman. He sucks. Yeah. 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 Uh, He's he's really not the sort of person you like, you know, you you really want to unfollow him on Facebook. It's it's really critical. (laughs) Yeah. But I in that part, that was because when I left the movie, one of the moments that I debated as being overkill was uh, the moment that you mentioned earlier when his hand gets pushed into the dead body. Yeah. But no, his friend is is going is going to lead him to death. And that's literally what just happened. His friend is being clumsy and it pushed him into a dead. Like it's ba- he's gained like a physical representation of what he thinks his friend is going to do to him. <laughs> yeah, that's clever. The other uh, aspect of that is I read a uh, article on the Washington Post that was kind of an interview with Sam Mendes. And um, so this film, it's there's nothing, you know, it's not based on a true story, but it is based on the kind of stories that his grandfather used to tell him about World War One, And one of the things that Sam Mendes talks about in this interview is he says that he always saw that his grandfather was washing his hands and they would, his, he and his cousins would kind of make fun of him for that and think it's weird. And, but his father said that it was because he would remember how it was in the trenches and in all the mud and that he could never get the mud off his hands. You do in that scene, followed by the scene underground, really get a feeling for the dust and the mud and everything like that. Yeah, I feel like for those who have 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 risked diving into a spoiler section of a movie review that they haven't seen yet, should just have the the notification of if you get claustrophobic, you really at the very <laughs> least go take your your bathroom break during the mine shaft scene. The mine shaft scene is or the scene the mines the mind shaft scene. <laughs> it's a tongue twister. <laughs> I mean that scene I think is just expertly done. Um so the part where the rat trips the landmine is probably the scariest thing I've seen in theaters in years. Uh it scared the shit out of me. <laughs> that was easily the biggest gasp in my theater. Everyone jumped and then you heard the gasp as everyone realized where that rat was headed. Yeah, and the man, something about the way that they do it is he doesn't just fall and then it triggers. He falls and you have just enough time to be, oh, okay, maybe he's not gonna trip it. And then he instantly trips it. And yep. then everything explodes. Oh man, it was it was terrifying. <laughs> so that scene is fantastic. The brilliance in that scene of it being that natural lighting. So as a result, you constantly don't know where the floor, the walls are. And just, you know, it's, it's that claustrophobia that you normally akin to like sci-fi horror films that are on spaceships. And and you got it in this film and it was fantastic. Yeah. The lighting in this film is something else. I mean, I rarely notice lighting. That's one of those things when people say that, that I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. But in this, it is striking. Um, do you have a favorite scene or sequence in the film? 
there were so many little moments that I loved. Like there was like, I, I don't know what it was necessarily, but there was something about all of the soldiers ganging up on, but in a camaraderie sort of way, the, the Indian soldier, when he claimed he could do a better impression of their commanding officer. Uh-huh. And then he does it. And they're all like, they basically all are trying to not admit that he just knocked it out of the park. <laughs> um, there was something about that that I absolutely loved. Um, yeah, that's a very human moment in the film. Yeah. And for, for me, I've discovered um, in the past couple of years, you know, since I have my daughter, the, you know, it definitely has altered certain scenes in movies for me. Mm-hmm. And I was heartbroken watching, you know, the whole final scene of telling him his brother is dead. And I just happened to be watching Richard Madden at just the right moment when he mentions writing to his mother to see the change in him where he clearly, like, he clearly thought he was done with this kid and he could kind of feel his brother's death. And now this guy's just reminded him that his mother is going to have to find out that she's lost a son and the emotion that sweeps over him. And that that was what really got me. Wow. Yeah. Richard Madden's reaction is really, really good. <laughs> He's absolutely amazing in this movie. Yeah. For, for being in one scene for a few minutes, he is absolutely amazing. Yeah. I mean, I think overall the acting is really fantastic in this film. And there's nothing that, you know, I guess they're not given enough to do to be like an Academy Award caliber performance or anything like that. But just the emotion of when, you know, when George McKay has to, is trying to carry his friend away. Um, I mean, how scared Toman is when he's dying. Every, everything really works for me on an acting level in this film. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, now, one, one of the things I'm wondering, because that I wanted to ask you, because I, I, I've seen it a bunch on, you know, people, people talking in the, the film Twitter universe, would you consider there to be a comparing of this movie at all to, to Dunkirk? And if so, do you view one as like a superior film to the other? <laughs> um, I find Dunkirk very boring. I am not a fan of Dunkirk. And I think the reason for it is because, I mean, what what people criticize this film for is what I criticize Dunkirk for, I think, that there's a lot of very cool technical and um, interesting production level things in Dunkirk, but I don't give two shits about the characters in that film and the unlinear nature of it makes it feel more gimmicky and more confusing than it does anything to actually impact me. So in that way, I think this film is miles superior than Dunkirk because I genuinely care about both these characters. And then it's also thrilling and beautifully shot and everything like that. What about you? I I definitely agree that the, the non-linearness of Dunkirk, uh, that, that in itself is also a gimmick. Um, That one to me, it just kills a lot of the tension in the film but for for me the big stark difference between these two films is the score the like the the music score in dunkirk is just it is telling you everything like it's literally like you you know a like a plane an enemy plane is coming before the soldiers on the beach do because of the way the score is in that film so you're saying that the Dunkirk score is better? Like you really admire that score? No, no, no. I think it hurts the movie. Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, and, and part of it is, and this is one of the things that always drove me crazy about the film, was that when Chris Nolan showed the film to World War II vets, the thing they kept talking to him about was how it was so silent on that beach that they were in constant paranoia about when enemy planes would appear mm-hmm. and all i could all i kept thinking after that was imagine that movie with no score where you, you you have no score to hint at what's happening whereas the score in that film was just giving the whole show away constantly but with this film i did feel 
the score was, you know, it took a backseat when it needed to. It wasn't telling me when things were going to happen. It wasn't giving away the farm. It wasn't painting. It wasn't painting a picture before the rest of the movie had a chance to keep up. Um, and that, that for me is the, the big thing over 1917 to Dunkirk for me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. I guess I, I don't really remember the score of Dunkirk. Honestly, I only watched it the one time. And at this point it was three or four years ago or whatever it was. Um, so do you like the score in this one? Um, maybe that can be a good segue into kind of talking about this film's Oscar potential. And I mean, we're, I've never been, uh, I wasn't podcasting in last Oscar season. So this is sort of a new thing for me to look at a film that's been nominated for Oscars before, um, the ceremony. Um, yeah, I'm right there with you on that one. We, we didn't have our podcast before, um, award season last year either. Yeah. And a lot of people I know in my regular life, they, they don't care. They don't know enough to come on and talk about, uh, Oscar stuff. So this is a, this is a good chance. Um, so 1917 was nominated for 10 Oscars, one of them being score. What are your thoughts on its chances of score? I guess we'll start there. Chances. I'm not sure. Not because of anything to do with the score itself. There are a lot of, uh, the Oscar movies that I still have yet to see, including, uh, Joker. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I, I will be on like, my problem is I watched the trailer for that movie and I watched the first trailer and was like, well, this could be kind of interesting. And then I watched the second trailer and I went, never mind. It's an R rated <laughs> DC villain version of Maleficent. I'm not interested anymore. <laughs> and Todd Phillips just kept opening his mouth and making me go, yeah, I really don't want to give this movie my money. Yeah. So uh, I don't want to make this a Joker podcast cause I have one of those, but yeah. um, I will say that, I was very much like you going into it where I was actually, I would say pretty confident I was going to dislike it. And I thought it was going to be edgy for the sake of edginess and, you know, basically everything that Deadpool could have been by being R. Like I thought they were going to take all the wrong uh, yeah. lessons from that movie. Um, but I actually think it's, I mean, it's not amazing or anything and I understand that it's problematic, but there's, there are good aspects to it. I think you, you may find something worthwhile in it certainly the score i think is very good and it seems to be like it it's probably yeah. locked for um for hilder whatever her last name is the icelandic woman um so how would you feel if 1917 won best picture uh i would i would be happy it's right now because i mean right now the only two best picture nominees that i believe i've seen are 1917 and jojo rabbit okay uh, I can't recall the other nominations off the top of my head to be able to say for sure if I've seen any of them. Um, but I mean, I would not be against it winning. I'm not, I, I guess for me, the Oscars are more about what statement are we setting for where the film industry is going from here. I guess that, that to me is more what matters in, in who wins than crowning something as the best thing that was made that year. Right. So like the, the example I always give is you might not like the hurt locker, but having the hurt locker, a movie that made less than every other movie nominated that year, when, especially over avatar, which was marketed entirely on being an IMAX 3d film that really, that I think really helped fuel the industry keeping these smaller studios that we now have like a 24 and others to be able to be strong, to be able to get backing and financing and um, the quality and actors, writers, directors, and whatnot that they get because Hollywood as a whole said this little technically indie film that barely made any money we think is better than this big 3d movie. And I don't really know what statement, Hollywood would be making with with any of the the best picture nominees winning this year. So I, I really haven't <laughs> quite sold a dog in the fight yet. Yeah. So I mean I think 1917 seems like a film that the statement that they would be making is everything is what it is. 
in the sense that it's not something as problematic or backwards thinking as Green Book or Bohemian Rhapsody like last year, but it's yeah. also not anything as exciting or progressive, I guess the word would be, as something like Little Women or Parasite. So I could see 1917 being a very safe choice, and I certainly would not be upset about it winning. I don't know if it's my personal pick, given given your criteria. I guess I've never really thought of it like that. I think that's a really interesting way of considering the best picture uh, race. I guess right now, um, you know, I... I you know, again, I love this movie and the other one that I know I watched from the year Jojo Rabbit. I also love that one. I love both movies. I guess if I like, again, going from the frame of mind that I think I would almost not want 1917 to win specifically in the hopes that it would make people go, well, was it's problematic, random and unaccessible release schedule part of its downfall and make them start reconsidering doing that you mean it's kind of the stupid thing that studios do where they release it for two days in los angeles and then we have to wait until january and we don't get to see the movie before the golden globes is that what you're talking about yeah yeah <laughs> yeah sloppy limited release just for oscar consideration um because i was actually i i actually um on the way to and from work today i was listening to your top 10 comedies episode that you that you recently did oh sweet. and started talking about grand budapest and it it made me remember the fact that before that one of the big things that people were talking about after grand budapest got nominated even just nominated was is february still a no man's land for good films to be released and that was when we started to see some better films start getting released in February, including films like Deadpool and Black Panther for like the more mainstream market films. So these award seasons can affect the the nature of release schedules. So, Wow. Well, whatever the statement is, um, I do hope that 1917 does get some love. I, I think that certainly cinematography, it's nominated for that and then uh ford versus ferrari was my huge sound movie uh when that came out but now i would be pretty pleased that this got like whatever the difference is between sound editing and sound mixing and you know production design all of those things i think 1917 uh, would be well deserving of if it were to get it yeah i will say I, my my big stipulation on cinematography is i will be i will be very upset if this movie wins best cinematography and the cinematographer does not come out to collect the award on the motorbike that they use to film the chase sequences <laughs> in the town, if he doesn't come out riding that thing, I'm going to be furious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just watched uh, that behind the scenes thing. Uh, it's, it's fa fascinating. So uh, for listeners who want to see, like, I mean, I, I think, I think, that's another great thing about this movie is that it does make you very aware of what has to go into filming these kind of things in a way that most movies, uh, even if there are really great shots, you don't really think about it that much. With this one, you're very aware of they had to somehow get this sweeping shot and everything. So the behind the scenes stuff is really fascinating. And I'm not a huge like extras on DVD kind of guy. But when this comes out and when it's $9 or less uh, on Black Friday next year, I'm assuming this is the perfect movie for that. I will buy this and definitely watch the uh, the like behind the scenes stuff. <laughs> yeah, this will definitely be one to, to watch. I, ima I imagine that there is going to be some pretty hilarious um, commentary by I'm hoping that they have like a, a commentary with you know our our leads our you know sam mendez the cinematographer just all them talking about all the little stuff because like i can't remember the scene to save my life but apparently the scene that gave them the most trouble was one that involved a lighter huh. and i can't think off the top of my head what that scene might be but apparently it cost them almost an entire day of filming and i would love to hear the story around that i would also love to know how much they had to walk like if they're doing 20 minute takes, they, they've got to do it at least more than once. And 
yeah. these guys probably walked like a whole marathon every day, just going and talking and walking. And it's, I mean, just the, the, it, the mind boggles just thinking about what you would have to do to prepare for some of these shots. So, um, I think yeah. we've, I think we've done enough, uh, kind of praising that part of the film though. So I'll, <laughs> I'll let that go. Um, to avoid this being a complete like praise lauding thing or whatever you want to call it. Uh, were there any parts of the film that didn't quite work for you? I guess for me, I, there were, there were some times where I got frustrated. Maybe it was just at myself. Maybe, I don't know, maybe you felt the same way, but there were certain times in the movie where I started to think, okay, I am as tense as I can possibly be. You have made me super, super tense. Even if it's just that somebody farts, can something happen so that way it's not just me sitting here in tension waiting for the next thing to happen? <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's there's certainly like a lack of levity in the film. I think there's maybe there's a couple characters that make a crack like a joke or something, but it's very few and far between, especially once uh, Toman dies. So. Yeah. I think that's fair. The The one scene that I thought was relying a little too heavily on war tropes was the whole scene um, with the French woman and the baby. I feel like there's always yeah. a scene in a war film where there's a woman and she's usually French for whatever reason. And, you know, she's nice to the soldier and stuff. Nothing particularly terrible about the scene, but I did find myself going, oh, OK, we're in a war film now. I I would like to see a movie that's all about the, like some French town war is coming and they do a raffle of all the like young, attractive 20 something women in the town to see which one of them has to stay behind to entertain, to like entertain (laughs) random soldier. And then, you know, they have to like pull us, you know, piece of paper out of a hat, like, okay. And you are stuck with a baby. You are stuck with a horse. (laughs) <laughs> yeah i agree it's a, for some reason there is some french girl always like a young attractive french woman who for some reason did not get the hint when everyone else left town that she should go to <laughs> yeah <laughs> she overslept that day woke up and everyone else in town was gone and never once thought this is weird <laughs> yeah <laughs> Uh, it's yeah. a it's a it's a minor nitpick. The other even minor nitpick is I'm pretty sure you can't feed a baby like unpasteurized straight cow milk. Is that do I just not know anything about babies? But it feels like you can't just give them cow milk. It's not ideal. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean that or they starve. But certainly the sort of thing I would have gotten in trouble for if I had done that when when my daughter was was really young. But I imagine that. In the circumstance, you would just kind of let it slide. Um, you would just kind of take the risk. And it, it is weird as, as weird as this sounds, because again, I feel like this this falls into not just war trope, but dystopia trope. I was really happy that the baby had a diaper on. Because <laughs> I feel like so often in these movies, we're like, here's a baby, naked bottom. Yep. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're totally right. <laughs> Nobody has a baby that's, you know, six months or younger and ever thinks hey, you're without a diaper for a while. Nobody thinks nobody, nobody is that brave. <laughs> so it always, yeah. it always me for some reason when I see that even before I had a kid, but even more so after. So when she pulled her out, I started to worry. I was like, is this another like naked ass baby? Oh no, we got a diaper. Okay, go ahead. Continue movie. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's move on to our point two section where we talk about some of the other stuff that we've been watching. So, Tom, you mentioned that you haven't been watching much else, correct? No, I I think the only thing I've watched recently was at like 2 a.m. We my daughter wouldn't go to sleep and we turned on Mulan. Okay. to just kind of distract her. So you're on the Disney Plus train. Yes, you you don't have a you don't have a two year old that loves Mickey Mouse and not have Disney Plus. That's just dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, I mean, my wife and I we both love Disney. Our 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 pets are both named after Disney characters. But it's the first time I I think I'd honestly watched Mulan since it came out. Oh wow! 
Um, it had been a while. It was one of those movies that it was for my age range. It was right after I was young enough that I ate up every single Disney movie. Right. And it was where you could really tell the age difference when I was in college. <laughs> Cause I'd be, you know, I'd be singing if I thought Disney, I'd sing a little bit of Aladdin or something, you know, something or else or other. And then most of the people in my class that were like five years younger than me would constantly sing, I'll make a man out of you, which the song makes me mad only because BD Wong, who plays the character has an amazing singing voice. So the fact that they didn't have him sing the song just makes me angry, but it's, it was, it's better than I remembered it. It's still not one that I necessarily love, but it was better than I remembered it being. I'm I'm a huge fan of Mulan. I that sort of is my I mean I remember in high school that's what we would sing is I'll make a man out of you, you know. That was like the go-to song that everybody memorized the lyrics for. Very excited for the uh the new Mulan coming out later this year. I think it looks like it might actually be an adaptation instead of just a straight remake. So, fingers crossed with that one. Yeah, in spite of the controversy with the lead actress, the movie itself does look very good. Yeah. So um, I saw the movie Loose. And so this is a really complicated film. It's directed by Julius Ona and it stars Naomi Watts, Kelvin Harrison Jr., Octavia Spencer and Tim Roth. When I first met my mother, she couldn't pronounce my name. My father suggested that they rename me. They picked Loose, which means light. If you Googled model student, Luce Edgar's picture would come up on the computer. Given Luce's background, you and Peter must have faced quite a few challenges. The language barrier, the culture shock. I mean, you don't pull a kid out of a war zone and have him turn out like Luce without a lot of help. Which is why this is so difficult. Difficult? Last week, he wrote a paper in which he argued that violence was a necessary cleansing force. You you teach this? I don't. So what? Just something's going on, and I want to be in front of it. She thinks I'm a poster boy. Black kid who overcame his tragic past. You really don't like her, do you? Okay, what about a responsibility to tell the truth? What? This! don't conform to what she wants and suddenly you're the enemy. This woman has some kind of vendetta against Luce. Isn't there a chance that what he wrote has went over your head? I can tell the difference between miscommunication and provocation. Like it how? Writing something like that might make someone freaked out. You really think I believe that stuff? Have you seen this one, Tom? Uh, no, this one, this is one of those movies that I, because of the area that I live in, I didn't even know it existed. And then by the time I, I knew it did, um, it was that that dark window of it's not in theaters and it's not out on video yet. So, yeah. So I ended up seeing this on a Delta Airlines flight. Um, I I don't normally fly Delta. I usually have a problem with Delta Airlines. Um, hopefully they don't want to sponsor this podcast. But um, <laughs> <laughs> so I was pretty surprised to find that they just have a huge amount of movies on their personal you know computer screens or whatever on the back of chairs and so i saw that loose was on there so i decided to not watch the thing i downloaded on netflix and watch loose um so in this film kelvin harrison jr is the adopted son of naomi watts and tim roth and for the first 10 years of his life he was a child soldier in africa so now he's a high school senior and he's basically one of those perfect students and athletes and everybody loves him But then Octavia Spencer plays a teacher who starts making these claims that suggest that he might be a little more troubled and conflicted and damaged from his childhood than he comes off as. Um, And the rest of the film is just this really wonderful labyrinth where you you are just trying to navigate all these claims and try and figure out what you personally think. The film sort of asks you to take a side Uh, As a viewer, do you believe Octavia Spencer or do you believe Kelvin Harrison Jr.? And every time you think you have an idea of where, like, where everything lies, the film introduces this new piece of information and it makes you reconsider everything that you knew about the situation in a completely new context. And because of that, it's really engaging and intriguing. And you're just the whole time you're trying to figure out what's going on and figure out what you think about it. 
But what I really thought was impressive about this film is that it doesn't just make you consider what you think. It makes you consider why you think about it and sort of it, it plays a lot with the idea of these racial biases and um, the sort of societal expectations that are placed on black young men and um, but also, you know, just women in positions of power and who do you trust more and why do you trust those people more and uh, that whole dynamic. It's really complicated and I don't know if the film ever firmly lands on something. So the ending is a little unsatisfying, I'll say, because it doesn't satisfy that almost mystery-esque aspect of the film. But I really think that this film is so wonderfully dense and it gives you a ton to chew on. And uh, I would highly recommend it if you're on a Delta Airlines flight, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I don't know if I'll be on one of those anytime soon, but I always get some... uh... I always get some Amazon gift card money for for Christmas and birthdays, and I've started earmarking chunks of it towards renting movies on Amazon Prime. So I'll have to I'll have to put that on the on the list of things to to rent. I mean, I already kind of get an idea of where I'm going when you tell when you say it's a movie starring the same actors who played a couple in Funny Games. Um, <laughs> automatically, it makes me go. So this is not going to be happy is what you're saying. Um, <laughs> it's, I mean, there are, there are definitely heavy moments in it. Yeah. <laughs> I, it's, I mean, I like Naomi Watts. I, I think Tim Roth is great as long as he's on board with the movie that he's making. Um, when he's not, he's not so great. And Octavia Spencer, she's, my issue with Octavia Spencer is that she made the help. And then people just kept casting her as that role in other movies. And it, it got under my skin a little bit in the same way that like Will Ferrell kept, kept getting cast as Frank, the tank from old school in all of his movies, (laughs) that sort of thing of like, no, this person can do other stuff. So please let them do other stuff. Cause we're marketing them off of, you know, it might be a good role that you're marketing it off of, but your copy of it is not as good. So I haven't seen The Help, but I do think that Octavia Spencer gets quite a bit of work to do here. And she's much, she's almost, I mean, I don't think she's like a villain in The Help, right? Yeah. So she's not a villain in this, but she definitely is kind of butting heads with the, the main character and with Naomi Watts. So you get a slightly darker aspect to her. Um, so she's not the, the kind of, she's not like bubbly and overly helpful like she is in something like uh the shape of water so i i thought that she was actually fantastic yeah no i've actually and i don't know if you've heard this but i've i've heard a fun fan theory going around that um that loose is a prequel to ma and that she's the same character in both movies <laughs> i haven't seen ma either but just from the trailer i could see that <laughs> that's really funny that theory and i thought about the trailers for the movie i went okay that makes me want to see loose at least a lot more yeah have you seen ma no i haven't i i generally those the for lack of a nicer way to put it even when they're rated r i just kind of view them as like teeny bop horror films and i can never quite get excited or on board with them yeah i mean i would never go to see that movie just because it's like even if it's good, it's not my type of movie and I don't think it was great. So, but regardless, yeah, I would, I would highly recommend loose. I can't guarantee you that you're going to love it, but I do think that there's a lot that it'll make you think about. So, and it does seem like a type of film that will eventually be on Hulu or Amazon prime or something like it's just too small and too good of a movie for it to not pop up on some streaming service, but who knows? I got to say, I, I do love the fact that Hulu seems to be the bastion of the little indie film that, you know, it's it's kind of like they went, hey, every single time one of your friends nags you to go watch a little indie film, let us know. We'll buy the rights and we'll put it on Hulu. Yeah, they seem to be because they that's how I finally got to watch Dave Made a Maze, which was fantastic. And, and um, saw Anna and the Apocalypse, which let me down a little bit but it was still not a bad movie. But I, the amount of indie films that I suddenly go, oh, crap, it's on Hulu is insane. Yeah, I got to see Wild Rose on there. I have Night- The Nightingale on my watch list on there. And then I think, 
Last Black Man of San Francisco is on there too, which is fantastic if you haven't seen that one. So thank you, Hulu, for doing that. Yeah. <laughs> Sponsor my podcast. Yeah, that's what I was <laughs> Delta, you got to get Hulu. So you got to get someone to sponsor. Yeah. <laughs> Free ads. <laughs> so this has been our review of 1917. Tom, thank you so much for joining me. Um, you know, you're always a positive presence on Twitter. I love interacting with you on there. And uh, hopefully you can come back sometime soon. Is there anything you'd like to plug? Um, well, I mean, first, again, thank you for having me. And, you know, yeah, hopefully I'll get to be back at some point here in the not too distant future. Um, uh, I'm currently, I just, um, last night I posted part three. I've been working through my top 100 favorite films of all time on, on movies after work. And I, I posted part three of four last night. So if you want to hear me rambling on about a bunch of random movies, uh, <laughs> I've got, I've got three fantastic options for you with the fourth one that'll be out uh, probably Monday or Tuesday. Sweet. And I will of course provide links to that as well as uh Tom's Twitter. Um, it's always, he's a, he's a great presence on Twitter. So definitely follow him there as well. The intro music for this episode is a piece called work by Kevin McLeod. And you can find more of his work at incompetech.com. If you'd like to keep up with this podcast and find out when we release new episodes, you can follow us on Twitter at MovieMarapod or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash MovieMarapod. That's Movie, M-A-R-A, pod. And you can always reach out to us at our email, MovieMarathonersPod at gmail.com. You can find more episodes of this podcast on Podbean at MovieMarathoners.Podbean.com. And we are also on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and Spotify. So please subscribe or write a review if you like what we're doing. And any feedback you have to help improve the podcast is always appreciated. So thank you all for listening. And we hope you'll join us again next time when we run through what is going to be determined. Not quite sure what's on the Dosset next. So stay tuned for that. Until then, bye. Hi, I'm Christina Yerling Biro, host of the podcast Pop Culture Confidential. Join me as I go way behind the scenes with some of the most influential people in entertainment and media. Hear actors such as Succession's Brian Cox talk about his favorite characters to play. There always has to be a mystery. The audience have to be in a situation where they want to know what's going on. Meet studio execs like Pixar chief Pete Docter and learn his secret on how he makes us cry. Emotion is our first language. And so many others who are defining popular culture, from Obama speechwriter David Litt to Top Chef host Padma Lakshmi. We don't often think about food politically or we don't want to, but it really is. Join me. Search for Pop Culture Confidential wherever you get your podcasts.